Hey, welcome to the Scrum, GBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with my colleague, Soraya Wintersmith. What's up, Soraya? Hey, Adam. We have been on a bit of a summer hiatus for a while now, but we are back and have a couple format and focus changes I want to mention right at the outset. One of these is, as you may know, if you are watching my comments as opposed to just listening to them, we're going to try working with a video component in this new iteration of the Scrum. And over the course of the next few weeks, we are going to be focusing squarely on Boston's mayoral race in advance of the preliminary election, which, if you're watching or listening, you almost certainly know is going to whittle the field of candidates down to two finalists. Also, Soraya and I are going to be sharing hosting duties, and our colleague Peter Kadzis is going to be kicking off each episode with some deep thoughts, historical, political, philosophical, cultural, about aspects of the mayoral race. And that, of course, is a natural time to bring in Peter Kadzis. Peter, good to be talking with you again in a scrummish capacity. Yeah, this is uh, the first time I've worn a necktie since the pandemic. So it's in this, it's an historic occasion. I think that might actually be, is that the tie that I borrowed from you when we were up in New Hampshire for the primary. This is the Adam Riley Memorial necktie. Yes, as as seen on uh, PBS uh, NewsHour. Um, PBS NewsHour. Yeah, a, a highlight of my last few years, actually, wearing your tie on that show. I mean, uh, Peter, I know that the topic that we're kicking around today, and the topic that you want to offer some insights into at the outset, is what you have termed Boston's changing political DNA. Can you tell me and Soraya and everyone watching and listening what you mean by Boston's changing political DNA? Well, there's a lot of talk. Um, the, the word historic gets bandied about regularly in reference to um, the current mayor's election. Um, and it is historic. Um, we have uh, five major candidates, all are people of color. To me, even more remarkable is four of the five are women. Um, so it is an historic election, but we didn't get here overnight. And I, I thought I'd take a stab at sharing my view of sort of uh, how we got from back there to, to right now. And um, I would start in the year 2009, which is the year that uh, Ayanna Presley was elected to the Boston City Council. I, I think um, history is going to record now Congressman Presley as a pivotal figure in Boston politics. But 2009 isn't the really important year. That was, of course, the year that she became the first African-American woman to be elected to the Boston City Council. But the, the truly transformative year, I believe, was 2011, which was obviously two years later. That's when she topped the ticket, became Boston's you know, biggest vote-getter uh, among the city council candidates. But there was a real twist to it. Going into the final election, she was really lagging in the polls, and there was some question as to whether Presley would 
you know, make it again um, to one of the four at-large seats. And Boston had changed enough so that the very idea of there not being a black person on the city council, uh, specifically Presley, who would become pretty popular, was pretty alarming. And to try to compress an awful lot into a little space, um, city councilor John Conley um, campaigned with her door to door throughout the city. Um, and this was sort of a conscious raising, a conscious raising uh, exercise. You know, it, it made people realize that, look, you, you know, we really do need a diverse council. Um, and it was very effective. As I said, Presley topped the ticket. Um, and, you know, she has been on the roll ever since then. Now, I don't want to pretend that uh, there wasn't a strong element of self-interest in this for John Conley, who was already beginning to think about running for mayor. And this paid off very well in 2013 when he did run for mayor. It definitely helped him with votes in the black community. Obviously, it didn't help enough because Marty Walsh won. But let me take an interesting uh, little digression here. The neighborhoods in which Presley and Conley both had real support um, were South Dorchester, Mattapan, Roxbury, Mission Hill, big parts of Jamaica Plain. Um, these neighborhoods remained very strong for Presley and uh, constituted the core of her Boston strength when she was elected to Congress. Um, beating multi-veteran Mike Capuano. Um, but back to the main event. Um, I would say that the current moment in politics was inaugurated in 2011 when Presley topped the ticket. And you can see that the, the sort of head of steam that began to build carried over into uh, 2013. Once again, Presley topped the ticket. Um, a new political face named Michelle Wu came in second. Then, you know, two old standbys, Michael Flaherty and Stephen Murphy, came in third and fourth. So you, you're beginning to see, you know, the, the DNA of Boston beginning to change. Um, Black voters, Asian voters, Hispanic voters, they began flexing their muscles. Peter, let me jump in and ask you, at that moment yeah. in 2013, when those results were in, did you say to yourself, aha, something big is going on here? Or is it more the sort of thing that you were able to appreciate in retrospect, in terms of its significance? No, I had, what I did say to myself is, hmm, boy, that's interesting. Uh, but no, I, 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 it's only in the last six months that I've begun to grasp the significance of the past events. And I'll tell you, it wasn't until a couple of days ago that I realized how important 2015 was. Once again, Presley leading the at-large pack. Woo, coming in second with very little space between her and Presley. And coming in third... Anissa Asabi George, she makes her premiere in the at-large council, knocking off 
um, Steve Murphy, you know, the good sort of happy-go-lucky Boston hackerama politician, and uh, Michael Flaherty coming in fourth. Now, also interesting in 2015 is that's the first time Andrea Campbell ran from, for office. But she ran a write-in candidacy for the at-large Boston City Council. Now, I don't know whether that was just a whim. Um, I wonder if she thought it was a good way to stretch her political muscles, run for something she knew she didn't have a chance at to give herself practice. But 2015 is the year that much of today's mayoral race came together. If 2015 was, you know, the year when 2022 began to come into focus, we didn't realize it at the time. This is all, you know, 2020 hindsight. It's worth jumping back much farther in time in, in, in trying to place what I'll call the 2015 moment in a larger context. And you have to go back to 1949. Um, that's when um, John Hines beat, um, that, that's when John Hines, you know, was elected mayor, uh, upsetting James Michael Curley. Now, this is important because Boston had changed its political orientation. Hines won because he had superior organization. His, his campaign um, registered, I think, 20,000, 26,000 new voters. And these were people who were sick of the shenanigans of the past. He was followed by John Collins, who was something of a technocrat. Um, you know, a lot of the big building in Boston, the Prudential Center, um, Government Plaza, was all, all began under him. Then we had Kevin White. Um, so for 35 years, from John Hines to Kevin White, you had a Boston political scene that was very much focused on the future. And let me give you an example of what I mean focused on the future. When Kevin White ran against Louise Day Hicks, an easy way to get a handle on that was the people who voted for Kevin White, like my parents, were focused on where Boston was going. What, what did the future hold for their six children? The people who voted for Louise Day Hicks tended to want to preserve, you know, the bad old days, or what they saw as the good old days. They had a pessimistic view of life. They thought that whatever problems we had in the past, that's a, the, the problems we know were better than the problems we don't know. And that 35-year period was a period um, full of strife, especially near the end, school desegregation. It was full of strife, but it was built on a foundation of confidence. People were confident about the future. Now we move on to the Ray Flynn, early Menino years. Um, those were very different, and that's because, you know, the Menino, the Flynn and Menino administrations were about re repairing the, the deep, deep, vicious wounds 
that were inflicted on the city by school desegregation. Uh, it was a period of caution and I would say rebuilding. Um, I'm not sure how to characterize the later Menino years and the, and the, um, uh, and the Marty Walsh years. Part of me, the wise guy in me, wants to say Boston was fat and happy and no one wanted to disturb anything, and that's one reason why so little got done in those years. But um, I'll hold that for a, a, another topic. But uh, Walsh, you know, Flynn and, Flynn and Menino rebuilt the city spiritually. Marty Walsh allowed the city to just go crazy and build up with. And like I said, I want to hold my take on Marty Walsh for another day. You'll get your chance. I figure I will. Any questions or anything you guys want to disagree with or call me I'll out I'll let on? you hold the Marty Walsh take, but give us a taste. What's the title you would give to the Walsh years? Okay, I'm reserving the right to take this back. I would say the do-nothing years. I, I look at the state of the Boston public schools, which are as bad as they've been in recent memory. Um, I think Walsh deserves more credit than I'm willing to give him for the minuscule changes made in the Boston Police Department. But Marty Walsh's mantra was really, don't rock any boats. Don't get anyone pissed off at me. Um, let's let the, the rising tide of the Boston economy lift as many boats as possible. Um, a lot of housing was built. I'm not sure enough could be, although as Adam knows from previous conversations, I think that the, um, the ability of Boston City Hall to impact the housing market is greatly over-exaggerated. That doesn't mean they shouldn't do it. But um, I think in retrospect, um, Marty Wall sat on an incredible amount of political capital. That's one reason why he left as such a popular figure. You know, if it weren't for 10 pesky people on Twitter, we'd be looking back at the Walsh years as the Olympic years. Or, I guess, <laughs> what? They wouldn't have happened yet, but we'd be heading there, right? So. Oh, yeah. And then we'd have the Formula One raceway. Yeah, think of what could have been. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, I, I thought was not a bad idea. I just didn't think Boston would go far. Well, you were you right. Know, that was Marty Walsh's edifice complex. He, he, and by the way, many mayors want to do this. They want to build something or institute something by which they will be remembered. So it's not an unnatural thing for Walsh to have done. Got it. And now, Peter, very briefly, what do you think you would call the next phase of Boston mayoral politics? Just give us the title before we let you go. Whoa. I, I'm not going to risk that until the night of uh, September 14th. There's, there, there's too much up in the air. You know, I have to say, I've spent a lifetime following Boston politics, and this is the first time in my life that I've ever been unsure of where things are going. And that's good. So it's a good lesson, and uh, it, it's time for me to be humble. <laughs> You laugh at that prospect. Huh? I don't know. You're my boss. I don't know that I can. Yeah, that's what I. 
Peter Katz is his political editor for GBH News. Thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us. Thanks. Coming up next, we have Yawu Miller, the editor of the Bay State Banner, and Gin Doomchus, managing editor over at the Dorchester Reporter. And even though both of these men have the word editor behind their names, they do a fair amount of writing, they are two of the hardest working journalists in really super local Boston politics. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Aurea. Thanks for having us. I'm going to kick it off by posing a question that Adam posed to Peter, to both of you. Well, two things. First, what do you make of the idea that Boston's changing political DNA begins with Ayanna Presley coming to the council? And when the upset, the congressional upset happened and she succeeded Capuano, were you in real time thinking, wow, this is a shift? Or did you only realize that in hindsight? I think that 2018 was a pivotal year um, for a number of reasons. Uh, I'm Capuano uh, in the uh, district attorney. Um, you know, the district attorney's race was was pivotal in that year. It was also, I want to point out, um, the first time that I ever saw it in a Democratic primary, Roxbury voting in a higher percentage than South Boston. And also Ward 19 in Jamaica Plain voted higher than anywhere else in the city, higher than West Roxbury. So the 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 you know sort of long-standing dominance of South Boston and West Roxbury and Boston politics, you know, went down a notch. Um, so I mean I thought that that was pretty pivotal. Um, I do think that that you know just to sum it up really quickly, you can't win um, citywide without a coalition of you know, voters of color and progressive whites. And that's been operative since, you know, uh, the Menino years. Um, it, it has its DNA in the Rainbow Coalition, you know, when, when voters of color and, you know, a very small progressive white community voted for Mel King and Ray Flynn. And, you know, it was like um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid versus the Bolivian Army. But, you know, in this thing that that rainbow coalition has grown and the demographics of the city have changed and i think 2018 was the first was one of the first times when you saw dominance from that coalition of voters of color and white progressives again you want to jump in sure i think adam might remember he and i were, were standing outside city hall uh for for a scrum with with another guest and and i think i i suggested that ayanna presley could beat uh, Marty Walsh, if she wanted to, if she wanted to run, um, and I remember getting uh, quite a bit of blowback uh, after that episode of uh, the Scrum aired. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think I think that was borne out by the by the uh, the race she she had with uh, Capuano. Um, you know, and, and I and I, I can't uh, I can't say that that any sort of uh, thinking on my part was accurate. Um, in in uh, in that particular race, because uh, because I just I, I wasn't sure exactly how it was going to turn out. She she brought in the electorate and and she brought in folks who hadn't uh, hadn't voted before, which is which is what a lot of candidates talk about, but don't always succeed. Uh, and I and I think uh, that that's a big question for the September fourteenth preliminary is what is the electorate going to look like? We are going to have early voting for the first time. Um, Saria, you were you were covering um, the the board of of election commissioners the other day. 
um, uh, talking about uh, early voting spots, and I believe this is the first time municipal elections will be uh, partaking in early voting, so that's going to be a factor. Um, I think we're also going to see potentially a surge in younger voters. I think you, if you go into the crosstabs of the Suffolk poll, um, the last one, they did have a higher number uh, of, of younger people in there, and I think that is the expectation that the the number of people, the number of younger people who are going to vote, is probably going to be uh, larger than than it used to be. Um, so we have a lot of factors uh, playing into this, uh, along with the historic nature of of the race. That it it is really tough to um, tough to say how it's going to turn out. And you know, I'm I'm with Peter. I'm, you know, we're we're going to be looking through the numbers the night of September 14th and into the early morning hours, trying to figure out exactly uh, how each neighborhood, how each demographic, which way they went. Uh, and for which candidate. I want to ask both of you about the historic nature of the race and how you're processing it as people who grew up here. But before we tackle that, again, I got to ask you really quickly about the pushback you said you got when you suggested that Ayanna, that Ayanna Presley could be Marty Walsh. What happened? Well, Without betraying any off, you know, off the record conversations, sure. what was it? Uh, Walsh fans who took issue with that characterization? Uh, anything you can share, I, I'd love to know. <laughs> sure. I mean, it was it was the classic, you know, you know, it's uh, the folks, Walsh supporters, I think if we remember 2013, uh, you know, very vociferous Dan and you know, uh, he uh, inspires a loyalty uh, among his folks that, you know, certainly hasn't translated into coattails for candidates that he's endorsed. Um, and I think a lot of that is because, uh, you know, people, uh, they, they just have this loyalty to him um, that is uh, both endearing. It shows that, um, you know, he, he, uh, he is who he says he is. He presents himself as a you know, uh, uh, working class, uh, uh, middle class guy, um, but it's it's uh, it's also you know it, it can be a blind spot for for folks too. Where you know I, I think we've seen in many elections where people don't always see um, uh, the fault lines. So I, I I took it in good humor. Uh, anytime someone reaches out and, and pushes back on something, I'm I'm always I'm always willing to engage and uh, and all that. So. Uh, that was just that was just my opinion speak, at the time. I can't speak for Saray here, but that makes you uh, one of the the least thin skinned reporters I've ever spoken with. Because when someone pushes back at me, I get angry and defensive and, and do a bad job engaging. So, I'll, I'll, so I get, I've mellowed out quite a bit. Let's talk about the historic nature of this race, and I want to I want to get both of you to reflect on it. Gin, you wrote a book about the last mayoral race. Remind us of the title, by the way. It was an ebook. Uh, this this way to City Hall, uh, and it. it it nearly killed me. But <laughs> I'd like to get you guys to tell us if you ever thought uh, eight years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that we would see a field like the one that we're seeing this year. And yeah, well, I'd like to start with you as a black man who grew up in the city. Uh, did you see this coming or do you find yourself as you cover this particular election every now and then stopping and thinking, wow, I can't believe that the city has reached this point? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I think with, when Mel King lost to Ray Flynn, like it was a blowout two to one. Um, and it's like, you know, it, I think in the 70s and the 80s, we thought this city's never going to change. And then um, in the year 2000, uh, when the census results came back and it was, you know, majority minority city, you know, people began to think it's possible. And I mean, I think people, a lot of political activists thought things are going to change like right away. 
And uh, I mean, I think all of these little things that happened since then, like Felix D'Arroyo um, getting elected at-large counselor, um, Sam Yoon, the first ever Asian American elected to the at-large council, sort of showed possibility because Felix um, D'Arroyo, he, he came within um, just a few hundred or a couple of thousand votes of Michael Flaherty, who at that time was the top vote getter on the at-large council. So you're seeing that there's this possibility there. And it was just kind of a, you know, um, and when Felix D'Arroyo ran, people were saying, a lot of people were saying, it's not possible, like people of color can't win at large and boom, you know, so, you know, you started, you know, it's been kind of like a roller coaster, like, you know, there's hope and then there's like, the reality and sort of like seeing vote vote uh, results that kind of like show it's not possible. And then, you know, I, I think what we're looking at right now with, you know, as, as Gen referred to the young voters who are coming in, you know, there are so many um, variables that have changed. Um, it's just like, we don't understand like how all these inputs in the equation are going to translate into a result. We do know it's going to be a person of color, but you know, beyond that, like we can't say like you know what you know what advantage goes to Michelle, who what advantage goes to Janie. Um, I have my theories about what advantages go to Anissa Sabi George, but um, you know we're still like prognosticating on past knowledge without really understanding how the current demographics and you know political dynamics are going to play out. So we will all be pouring over those election results uh, September 15th. Again, how about you? Did you see this coming back in 2013 at all? Well, I think there was an understanding that uh, that Marty Walsh uh, was, uh, and I, you know, I think I think the term might have been bridge candidate uh, or a bridge uh, a bridge mayor, and and I give credit to David Bernstein for for uh, using using that term. Um, I, I think there was a sense that yes, that that uh, there will be a person of color who becomes mayor. It was just a question of of who and how many more election cycles it was going to take because, you know, Marty Walsh came in in 2013. He ran for re-election in 2017 and won handily. Uh, beat Tito Jackson, um, who was a progressive uh, a candidate, a, a progressive challenger. Uh, so uh, it was really a question of, of which election cycle uh, it was going to happen in. I want to go back to Yahoo's point, which I think is great as estimates or, or ideas about past electorates and not knowing who's going to show up. At the risk of undercutting myself as a reporter, I am really excited to see new registration numbers from the Board of Elections for this year to see if more voters showed up in any of the precincts where there are people of color. Um, unfortunately, Boston doesn't break down its data by like race and age and all that, but the professionals like Yahoo and Gin can make ideas based on where the registrations go up. Soraya, can I actually, oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to keep you guys from doing that. Were you asking for some prognostication here, Soraya? No, no, no. Just make okay. just the point that we are all anxiously awaiting new registration numbers, and then we can all pounce on them and write what we will. In that case, can I actually ask you a, a question before giving you a chance to question Yahoo and Gin and me if you want to? Like me, you did not grow up in Boston. We are not natives of Massachusetts. I'm wondering, from your vantage point, given any ideas that you might have had about the city before you came to work here, um, what's it like to see history being made in this place that has become your adopted 
hometown? That's a great question. Um, I think to some extent, we all get into this business to be in the front row of all of the historic happenings. So in that way, it's a reporter's dream. Um, I would like to spend more time and Peter might still be listening. So (laughs) if you're listening, this is for you. I would like to spend more time just talking to regular voters. Covering the candidates is very important. But when I think about the way that we as newsrooms typically cover national elections in other places, we just spend a lot of time like sitting in parks and coffee shops and just asking regular people for their ideas. And I haven't done a ton of that. I would love to do some more of that to get my head around how actual Bostonians are thinking and feeling. Um, And I'm a registered voter and I haven't decided either. I'm I'm looking forward to that myself too. I, I actually haven't. I mean, I I don't I don't live in the city, but in terms of what you said about going out and, and talking to voters, uh, some of my the happiest moments of 2013 were just going door knocking with uh, with either candidates or their supporters. I I I, uh, I went door knocking with uh, some Dan Connolly supporters uh, in Dorchester, and uh, you know it was funny. It's one one voter after the next. They knock on the door and they say, "Love Dan Connolly." I'd rather he stay DA, you know, and it was just kind of like just getting that sense from people of, of, you know, how they're voting. There were a couple of definitely like some people that were, oh, well, I'm related to Marty Walsh. I can't, um, <laughs> you know, or stuff like that. But it's, it was, you know, talking to voters, it, it really distills kind of where they're thinking. Um, and a, a lot of it's, it's strange, too. Voters don't necessarily track the way we think they do or how they sometimes answer polls. They sometimes have interesting reasons for uh, voting for someone that don't have anything to do with policy or don't have uh, uh, anything to do about why they grew up here. It's, it's always fascinating talking with voters. And in my experience, it, it tends to be more informative than you might think, because obviously it's unscientific. We're not pollsters. They're just, it's anecdotal evidence. But a lot of times the anecdotal evidence turns out to be somewhat prescient. I have not done a lot of talking with voters, and I too would like to do it. So Peter... Please consider that a cosign <laughs> on Soraya's suggestion. But Yahoo and Gin, uh, if you guys have done more of that than Soraya and I have, uh, and it's a big if, but if you have, what's your sense of what's on voters' minds right now as they get ready? And whether they're paying attention, I mean, that's sort of a perennial question. Are voters in Boston, where the turnout tends to be low, as it does in a lot of municipalities, are they paying as much attention as we are? Are they excited by the historic nature of it the way we are? What's your sense of what people who are going to be casting votes are thinking or feeling right now? I don't know anything more than what I've seen in the polls that, you know, housing is a big issue, uh, education, police reform, you know, all that. Um, you know, whether, you know, to what extent there was this idea that in Boston, um, people vote based on ethnicity, on, you know, who lives in their neighborhood, and then issues as like a distant third um, factor in, in their thing, in, the, in their calculus of who to vote for, you know, how much has that changed? Um, it'd be interesting to know, I mean, because for Black and Latino and Asian voters, issues would usually be higher than ethnicity or um, or where are you from. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I know that the poll, that what people say in the polls and how they vote, you know, it's going to be, you know, it's always going to feel like, like you've been blindsided when you see the results. So I'm just really, you know, fascinated by that. 
Um, I feel like the, the you know the voters who are going to vote in the preliminary who are going to narrow that field down to two are the ones who are probably more likely to be watching this podcast, listening to you on WGBH and reading the banner, um, and the and Dorchester Reporter, of course. Um, uh, but but um, yeah, the general election then will be another you know sort of another interesting like take on on you know what happened and you know where voters are at, where voters' minds are at, where Bostonians' minds are at. I mean, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of times I, I feel like I am kind of writing for uh, a fairly smaller audience that, uh, you know, that loves the horse race coverage and, and, uh, and, and don't, that's not a, that's not a slight. I love horse race coverage myself. I think it gets a bad rap, but uh, I, I think uh, more voters are going to tune in uh, uh, after Labor Day. I mean, we've got debates coming up. Uh, Dorchester Reporter and the Banner are partnering with, uh, with NBC10 uh, on their debate, the Globe and, and uh, your uh, able competitors uh, in the public radio space are, are going to have their own. You can uh, you can say the letters WBR BUR here. It's okay. It's okay. We, we I wasn't sure. Asked we do with them. It's like, it's all about the power of public media. So you can say that. No, I wasn't sure if it was like a Marvel Comics uh, DC Comics thing. That's the, you know, Marvel Comics never. They called them the Distinguished Competition. So so I, I think you know folks are going to tune into the uh, debates. Uh, but you know I, I think it's still remains to be seen again like I'm, I'm looking forward to hitting some doors with uh with either supporters or candidates just to get a real uh sense of of what folks are like I, you know and i think the other the other thing to keep in mind is mailers i mean mailers are a, a big way that candidates communicate with uh voters super voters uh so I, it's a great insight into a candidate's message of, of who they're trying to break through so um I've, I've always enjoyed when readers send me uh, uh pictures of their mailers again i don't live in boston so i don't get those um so it's always great insight into into what fo- what campaigns are thinking about what voters are thinking about the ideal is a mailer that claims an endorsement from someone who didn't endorse the candidate in question, or maybe a really embarrassing misspelling. But that's because I'm a superficial person. You're right. It does tell you how they're pitching themselves. I have a couple more questions that I want to run by you guys, and I'd actually love Soraya's thoughts on this as well. But feel free to pose any closing questions of your own. My penultimate question is, our colleague Ken Cooper floated the idea a few months back that Marty Walsh may in fact prove to be the last Irish-American mayor of Boston. You think there's merit to that idea? To me, it has, um, it's compelling in part because it's provocative, but also because as someone sitting in the, the suburbs trying to cover this race, it seems like it might be true. I think that that you know we've seen these demographic changes in Boston where people of color become a majority, but then we're also seeing black people become like the, the popul the black population actually shrinking in Boston as middle class black, Latino, and Asian voters get priced out of Boston. How does that change the equation? Like, will will we turn into another? I mean, will the whole city become like the South End, where um, people of color live in public housing and you know have much lower incomes, and then you know everybody else who's white is like you know middle class or or you know wealthy? I mean, I think to live in Boston, you know, if things continue, you're going to have to have like a law degree and be an economics major and work in financial services. Um, yeah, I mean, we, it's just impossible to know without understanding like what's going to happen to the you know to the demographic makeup of the city. Um, so it could be the last Irish American mayor who's 
that he's that Walsh was the last Irish American mayor, mayor was voted in by Irish Amer working class Irish American voters, but you know there could be like some Irish American yuppie person from Montana yep. who gets voted in, and it's just like a different <laughs> dynamic. You know, election elections are are uh, uh, they they reflect a lot about what's going on in a city, and they also reflect on the type of candidate that the voters uh, want. And you could argue that. Uh, Walsh won in 2013 because he was the most Menino-like candidate. Um, you know, he had a, a fantastic ground uh, game. He had so many uh, campaign folks, uh, union folks who were helping him knock doors. There were people that, that were on the streets on, on the day of the preliminary that just, they were standing there because there was nothing else to do. They couldn't knock doors. There were already people knocking doors. There were people already holding signs. Um, so I, I think it comes down to candidate uniqueness and, and what the electorate is looking for. Um, you know, as as Yahoo said, there could be another Irish American that that comes along that speaks to um, that electorate, um, and it's you know, I, I I'm I'm not I'm gonna let the historians uh, figure out who's the last uh, uh, anything. So <laughs> gonna leave it to them. I'm gonna keep up the uh, the the daily and, and weekly reporting that we do. That's probably prudent. Saraya, you have any thoughts on Ken's proposition? The only thing that I would say is when I look at where politics went nationally after uh, President Barack Obama's two terms. And then I think about this sort of political backlash of this underclass that for various reasons identified with Donald Trump. I don't know that there is a large enough I should find another word. I shouldn't say underclass. I don't know that there is a large enough portion of the electorate that would feel inspired to show up in a way that they hadn't previously. Um, but I, I would not wager that Marty Walsh is the last and final Irish mayor of Boston. That's a really good point. And it's, it's, um, it's enough to take me back to sort of all the end of history style declarations we got after Obama was elected. Do you remember when we were post-racial for a little bit? Post-racial society. <laughs> Racism is over. You guys got a president. Excellent point. Excellent point. All right, my last question. Oh, go ahead, Saraya. I will give everyone a choice between two. Is there a headline we would give for Kim Janey's possibly short tenure in the mayor's office? Or... Do you have a percentage prediction for turnout September 14th? Take your pick, gentlemen. I don't have to. Do I have to do this? You do. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll let Adam go first. I'm going to jump in early, and I'm going to say uh, Boston gets to a whopping 29%. Okay. Okay. That is close feeling. to where it was in the last open seat election. I'll, I'll take the over. I mean, I'm, I'm, bad, I'm bad at predictions. I remember I was, I, I said uh, in September uh, I think it was maybe 2015. I said, you know, the uh, Donald Trump kept kept staying in the polls, and I was like, oh, it's a passing fat. So I'm bad at predictions. Well, you weren't alone. <laughs> a lot of people got that one wrong. All right. So then, in that case, you got to do a headline for Soraya, right? Yep. Yep. What would you headline Janie's possibly short tenure? I thought I thought that's why I took the over on on Adams. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
possibly short time. I, I, it's, it's un- Well, that's the thing. It's, it's so, it's so unclear. We're, we're such a, in such a unique situation um, to have an acting mayor to, to, uh, uh, in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, I, I can't believe I keep saying in the middle of a pandemic, because um, it is still going on. Um, you know, there, there, there's so many factors in play, along with people going back, uh, kids going back to school, uh, some people going back to the office downtown, others, others pulling back. There, there's just so there's so many variables, uh, as, as Yahoo said, that it is, it is so difficult to pr- predict just how short this tenure is going to be. I would, I would say this about a headline. First of all, like I, it wouldn't be about Janie like having a short tenure. It'd be about somebody winning. Mm-hmm. And as a writer, somebody who has to write headlines for print, I'd rather it be Wu because it's shorter. Is Asabi George wins? Like you know, you get like Asabi George can take up a whole line, whereas like Woo, you get a lot more stuff in there in your headline. So it's big to have the banner endorse Woo on our podcast. So can make my life difficult as a headline writer. That's all I'm saying. That's I think a natural note to end it on. I can't even remember what I was going to ask, and and I can ask you guys again down the road. Yahoo Miller. Gin Dumpsius, thank you for joining me and Soraya and Peter Kazis to kick this stuff around. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. And Soraya, thank you for hosting with me. We'll do it again. Did you sail this new iteration of the Scrum Seas with you, sir? (laughs) That is going to do it for another installment, albeit a new iteration of the Scrum. Thank you for watching or listening. We would love to hear what you think worked, what you think didn't. Any suggestions that you have for things we should dig into, additional guests that we should have, topics we should have, you can find us. I'm at Riley Adam. Soraya, what's yours? I believe it's S. Winter Smith. Peter Kadzis is at Kadzis. You can also email us at scrum at wgbh.org. By the way, our producer, who you could also rope into this, is Zoe Matthews. She is at Zoe S. Matthews with one T. If you're listening, we'd love it if you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And I think that's all I have to say for now. We'll talk to you again soon. The Scrum is a production of GBH News.